Welcome to another episode of the Civ 6 Challenge League podcast. I'm your host, VectorCat. Let's, like, talk about some Civ stuff, I guess. This is an awful intro. I can probably do better, and yet I'm not. Anyway, looking back on previous episodes, whilst discussing both Alexander and Manatore, I remarked on how intriguing it is to me that their representation in Civilization VI is based upon our understanding of merely a decade or two of their lives. Make no mistake, what they both accomplished within their time is surely, and equally in my opinion, impressive. That being said though, what does it take, what must one do to be remembered and respected for one's efforts not across two decades, but two years? First of all, we gotta begin by understanding that when I say two years, that may be in fact only one year. You see, Ampiorix is best known for an uprising against the Roman occupation of Gaul in either 54 or 53 BCE, or an uprising starting in 54 and ending in 53 BCE. Either way, we can agree it's an impressive thing to be remembered for, right? Right. So, this uprising. Let's set the stage, shall we? We begin a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. The year 54 BCE. The place, Rome. Well, Gaul. But there were a bunch of Romans there, and, well, where Caesar goes, so goes Rome. And yes, I do mean that Caesar. You know, capital C, salad business, Caesar. Anyway, Caesar's presence in Gaul was solidified the Battle of the Sabus River in about 57 BCE, allegedly. After this victory, he set about reforming regional leadership and securing his control of Gaul by bringing as many tribal leaders as possible under his local influence. Caesar sought to consolidate power in Gaul by installing tribal leaders as vassal rulers, knowing that local control was often more palatable to the masses than just being barked orders at from some random oil-drenched Latin-speaking fancy boy. Caesar's moves to reconsolidate and redefine how power was wielded in Gaul worked out better for some of the local tribes than others. Some Gallic tribes actually benefited from Rome's aggressive negotiations. The Iberones, for instance were now no longer subservient to a neighboring rival tribe and their leader. Ambiorix had some of his family taken as Roman hostages released back to him. <sighs> Crap. 
doing this way out of order. Ambiorix is like kind of the subject of this episode, and I didn't really do the landscape here. It's like you don't know where he's coming from and just kind of jumped ahead to the occupation without setting the... the... Okay. Anyway, Ambiorix, stay with me. I'm going to get back to it. It's going to be fine. Anyway, okay. So we're just going to find our center. We're doing great. Ambiorix and his co-regent, Catavolcus, ruled over a Gallic tribe known as the Iberones. The Iberones were but one of multiple independent Gallic tribes that occupied lands west of the Rhine River in modern-day Belgium. We're gonna get to that Belgian part later, just stay with me here. The other neighboring tribes, the Nervi, the Treverians, and the Tuatatuaki, well, we'll have more on them later, too. Anyway, back to Ambiorix. Ambiorix led, with his co-regent, Catavolcus, a Gallic tribe called the Eberones. He was, depending on how you choose to translate his name and the definition of the word Eberones, the king of the surroundings, or the rich king, or the king in all directions. Either way, ultra-clutch moniker to be sure. Little, indeed, nothing is known about his upbringing. He really does not appear on the historical scene before his revolt against Rome. History only remembers him for what he did whilst in power. The time before and after his rule are equally shrouded in ignorance. So, that being said, I guess if I'm doing my job appropriately, we should just focus on what he did when, you know, he was in power. Caesar's Commentari de Bello Gallico, or Commentaries on the Gallic Wars, gives us most of, if not all of, the information we have about Ambiorix's accomplishments. We've discussed previously how ancient and classical primary resources can often be unreliable at best and completely unbelievable at worst. That being said, little on down the road, we do get a few points of corroboration for this particular historical record, so maybe, maybe this is worth believing. I'm not saying, I'm just saying. Anyway, just keep that in mind. Maybe this particular historical record is worth buying into. Anyway, okay, so let's let's get back to the um, ambiorix of it all. Okay, cool. Ambiorix individually and the Iberones collectively benefited from Roman occupation. But not every Gallic tribe shared in this. The Treverians, stalwart and proud, took particular exception to the Roman demands for tribute, especially considering that Rome's invasion coincided with a drought, and the Treverians were hard-pressed to stockpile and save whatever food they could. In Dudiomaris, king of the Treverians, seeing the suffering of his people but lacking sufficient arms with which to rectify their plight, convinced Ebiorix of the Iberones to be his hammerhand. It is unknown whether or not Catavolcus, Ambiorix's co-ruler, approved of this plan 
of resisting Roman occupation. It is telling, however, that history and video games and, well, Belgium, remember Ambiorix and not Catavolcus. Catavolcus may have been hesitant to contest Gaul's Roman occupiers. Ambiorix, however, was ready and more than able, and, as history bears out, very cunning in his approach to solving this problem indeed. Caesar and his local garrison commanders, Quintus Sabinus and Lucius Cota, considered Ambiorix an ally, especially after the aforementioned efforts to reconsolidate the Gallic tribal leadership structure. So, one can imagine their surprise when he arrived at the gates of the Roman garrison with the full armed might of the Iberones behind him. Unfortunately for our man, the Roman fort was very well defended and equally well supplied. An outright siege was impossible and would have proved disastrous for his army. Luckily for them, their leader had a bit of a trick of his sleep, something that I believe is very well represented in-game, a part of his character that is baked into not only the flavor text, but the representation of this sieve in the game. And I quote, your wits will serve you well, Ambiorix. Where the size of your armies fail, use your head and gilded tongue to reclaim your land. I really do think Firaxis does well here because it's his head and his gilded tongue indeed that gets Ambiorix and his army out of trouble. He convinces the Roman garrison commander that he had to assault them that other tribes were also doing the same right this very minute, and they should flee because reinforcements were coming. Not just any reinforcements, reinforcements from Germany. Okay, well, all right, fine. Look, um, okay, just like Gaul isn't quite Belgium yet, this Germany isn't quite Germany yet either. But but they're still very afraid, still vicious. Uh, these Germans, very scary. Um, but again, right, like like Belgium. They're not Germans. They're, they're proto-Germans. They're just, anyway, they're scary. Ambiorix promises safe passage through Iberone lands as a token of goodwill and a promise of peace between his tribe and Rome. He guarantees the legion a calm and uneventful road to territory currently commanded by Quintus Cicero, if they will just vacate this particular fortress. In other words, he lies. I can only assume that you see where this is going. The Romans argue and discuss. Eventually, they do decide to leave. Meanwhile, Ambiorix prepares an ambush outside of their fort. The Eberones, with the element of surprise on their side, slaughter the Roman legion exiting the fort, almost to a man wholesale. This is 
one of his achievements that he is known for because completely decimating an entire Roman legion was, to be sure, an achievement in this day and age. They then gather up the legion's weapons and armor and take them as trophies and also as proof of their conquest so that they can go to other people and say, no, we actually did do this, we're not lying. This proof goes far to rally other Gallic warriors to their cause, and in short order, the Atatuaki and the Nervi join the Euboroni Rebellion. With this combined force of multiple Gallic tribes, eager to reclaim their homeland, and perchance some amount of pride in having outwitted one Roman commander already, Ambiorix marches on Cicero's garrison, a unified Gallic army some untold thousand strong at his back. With the weight of such a force under his command, Ambiorix may have assumed it easy to force Cicero into a similar retreat as he had Sabinus and Coda previously. Unfortunately, this was not the case. These Romans remained entrenched and also managed to sneak a message out to Caesar. This is, and I cannot stress this enough, the worst thing that could have possibly happened to Ambiorix and his men. Caesar's forces mustered on a nearby hillside and fortified their position in a way that managed to hide their true numbers, leading the Gauls to think the Roman reinforcements were drastically fewer in number than they actually were. Ambiorix, king of the Eberones, with the united army of Gaul at his back, charged the Roman encampment, once again believing it was much weaker than it actually was. Just to have all of the gates of the encampment flung open and the full weight of Caesar's enforcers flung down the hillside at him, crushing him and his army into the hillsides of the valley below. The Romans won the day, to be sure. The Gallic assault on the Roman counterattack failed. But who won our memory? Who won our loyalty? Who won our hearts throughout the record of history? The uprising ended, the rebellion was quashed, but it's worth pointing out that there were many Caesars. There is only one Ambiorix. And this historical record, this memory of triumph, is why I suggest it's Ambiorix, not Vercingetrix or any other Gallic hero that is given to us in Civ 6. All right. So we just spent a little bit of time talking about how, in history, Ambiorix is remembered as a defensive and militaristic mentalist, right? And for my money, I think that his fictional representation in-game measures up well to his historical record. So, 
Let's dive in, shall we? Let's start with Ambiorix's leader ability, entitled King of the Iberones. This gives your civilization culture equal to 20% of the cost of production when you produce a military unit. All right? That is amazingly strong, especially in the early game when you're trying to ramp up to your early governments faster than someone else, right? Additionally, all of your melee, anti-cavalry, and ranged units are, get a plus two combat strength bonus for every adjacent unit. This can be your unit or someone else's. This ability right here applied to all melee, anti-cav, and ranged units fits well with our memory of Ambiorix and also just makes him a powerhouse for either offense or defense play in-game. And really, really, I want to stress this. Do not forget, enemy units count as well. So when your units get surrounded, they also get a buff, which can get you out of some scrapes when things are looking grim. The Gallic Civ bonus is called Hallstatt Culture. And this allows mines to provide a minor adjacency bonus for all districts. And it gets better, okay? Mines culture bomb surrounding tiles, which means when you build a mine, that mine grabs the adjacent tiles and adds them to your empire, as long as those tiles are within the city range. And they also receive one culture for free. All of your mines just give you one culture. Pretty amazing, right? Now, there's something to keep in mind here, though. There is a trade-off, okay? Typically, with any other sieve, your specialty districts, your non-aqueduct neighborhood districts, non-dam districts, right? Your specialty districts are going to just automatically provide a minor adjacency bonus for any other specialty district built next to them. This is not the case with Gaul. So city planning, playing as Gaul, is a unique experience. You want to be using your minds to create adjacency instead of districts. Also, you cannot build a specialty district to the city center. So a conventional harbor triangle with the city center is out of the question. You're never going to build a harbor right next to the city center, which is just standard operation for anyone else. So this sieve really does force you to think about how you're going to plan your city uniquely. However, it does compensate for that fact by giving you that adjacency for mines. And you'll notice that built into this being prevented from building districts next to the city center, this is encouraging you to spread out. This is double down on with the culture bomb, right? The Gallic Empire is going to sprawl widely. And so when you're playing the game, you may want to plan your cities a little further out than you would otherwise. And you can make the argument that this is true with any sieve that has a built-in culture bomb because you're going to be getting more land for free. But with Gaul, I would argue that it's even more important because you need your mines around your districts and your mines are going to give you culture bombs 
more reliably than some other culture bomb sieves. I think one of the exceptions might be Coupe, who gets a culture bomb with the fishing tiles. But we'll we'll deal with that when we start talking about Coupe and the Maori. Let's stick to Gaul here today, buddy. Anyway, so that's those are the two main sieve and leader bonuses, okay? And restrictions, right? Because I would count that not being able to build districts adjacent to your city 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 center district, I would call that a restriction. But again, I think there are a few trade-offs that make it okay. One of them is the Gazette. This is a unique unit that you get in the ancient era that replaces the warrior. So you're going to get some free era score on turn one, which is always great. The Gazette has additional combat strength when it's fighting a unit that has a higher base combat strength than itself. Which, again, think about those Gallic warriors in a valley ambushing Roman soldiers that were better equipped, better trained, better organized. You can see how the flavor of this sieve is is well-informed by the historical record. The unit's a little bit more expensive, but this really works out okay when you consider that it has that plus 10 combat strength against a stronger unit than itself, and there's a little plus 5 tucked in against district defenses. So if you do go on the offense and you're going to take enemy cities, the Gazette is going to do you some favors early on. You're going to have a bonus early on in the game when other people aren't. You know, one of the comparable units in game at this point uh, would be the Eagle Warrior or the Hypaspist. But I think that the Gazette is going to win a few contests when it comes to taking cities. Because the Hypaspist, with its bonus against districts, is going to come later than this does. All in all, I think that the Gazette is a very strong unit, and I encourage you to use it a lot. Be careful to balance how many you produce, though, right? Because you they are more expensive than the Warrior. They've got a higher production cost, and you don't want to just be spamming them out while you could be focusing on a smaller cohort of an army that can move together, and then you can distribute your production around to other parts of your empire. Because culture and infrastructure early on is going to be important. Although, this is also offset by Gaul incentivizing you to build a bunch of mines. So, you know, dealer's choice, I guess, is what I'm saying. In my humble opinion, the cherry on top of this sieve is their unique district, the Oppidum. The Oppidum is a replacement for the Industrial Zone, which comes early at Ironworking. And it is a crazy district. Okay, first of all, you get it early. Second of all, it gets a ranged attack similar to a city center and a barracks. And when you build your first one, you get the apprenticeship technology for free. You just get it. You don't get a bonus towards that technology. You just get it. So in a city with a barracks and an oppidum, you have three ranged attacks. 
if you have Victor in that city with the double ranged attack promotion, that city now has six ranged attacks before taking into consideration any garrisoned units. It becomes an almost untakeable city. They truly are on par with Vietnam at this moment for one of the most defensible turtle strat civs in the game. They are amazing when you're forced to play on the back foot because they can be, if your cities are planned well and you've got the infrastructure up and running, they can be very, very hard to take. Now, the Oppidum and its tie-in with Hallstatt culture, as mentioned in the Civ ability, is an interesting thing to explore because when you start digging into this, you know, you find somewhere that in... In some people's reckonings, Hallstatt just means town. But this is a, actually a really clever thing that, that Firaxis have done here, because an oppidum in the proto-Celtic Hallstatt tradition was an enclosed, fortified city of a slightly more primitive nature than we consider, you know, a stone-walled-in city. It was... It was sophisticated and well-defended, but it was not the, the medieval castle, right? It was not the Roman fort. It had a little more rustic charm to it, I guess is a really good way to put it. And these proto-Celtic fortresses were found in what can be considered the Hallstatt region, which ranged from some parts of the Iberian Peninsula over to Germany. And these are early Iron Age and late Bronze Age civilizations that were settling near freshwater, but also mineral deposits, and were able to advance a few mining techniques before other civilizations in Europe. This is bang on perfect with the way the civilization is expressed in game, because you get these benefits from building mines, you get your industrial infrastructure online earlier, and you have all of these early ancient to classical benefits when these societies were truly in their prime. It is worth noting that all of Gaul's special abilities start to run out before the medieval era. And this does track with Ambiorix being forgotten to history for a while, right? And the proto-Celtic Gauls also dying out because of conquest and disbandment and invasion from other parties besides the Romans. I mean, eventually, this, this culture that is represented by Gaul and Civ Six does meet its end before the later periods as they're represented in game. And so, loyalty to historical memory here does incentivize you to get your in infrastructure and your early moves happening fast. Now, you've got access to the Oppidum all game, right? Don't get me wrong. And you have access to the culture from constructing units all game. And you have, you know, there are benefits that you have the entire game. And that is true with many Civ unique abilities. But really the flavor of this Civ, the, 
the the spice, the the unique feeling that you get, in my opinion, is felt much more heavily in the early two eras of the game. This is not to say that they become bland later on. It's just that it's felt more easily early on, right? That's all I'm saying. Okay, cool. So with this sieve, I think, if I may, recommend a few things. Number one, explore with your gazetes early on. Get them some experience, level them up, and have a nice, tight cohort of defensive units at your beck and call in case someone else decides that they need your cities more than you do. While you're planning these cities, you have many versatile options. Early culture in Civ Six equals flexibility. If you have early production and early culture, the sky's the limit. That's beyond flexibility. Gaul, in my opinion, was at first potentially wrongly misunderstood as just a culture sieve and a wonder spamming powerhouse, but really that production and culture can lead you to springboard into, honestly, any win condition in the game. And yes, even religion. If there are some religious wonders that you want to get, they're going to be easier to get because you've got that extra production and culture to unlock them, right? There are a lot of advantages to this sieve that make them a jack-of-all-trades and and honestly, a master of some of them. I really do not think that Gaul is weak at a particular win condition. I think they're particularly strong at science and domination. I really do. I think that their production and their culture can let you focus on cranking out a very easy science win, but you can also go into a domination game and have a very, very fun time. That plus two combat strength early on can make a huge difference for a classical push if you time it right. And if you get a counterattack from one of your neighbors, it's not going to go well as long as you have your optimums online. They're an interesting civilization. They're a dynamic civilization. They offer many options in-game. And beyond just being well-designed from a gameplay point of view, I think when you compare and contrast their accomplishments and Ambiorix's accomplishments specifically, I think that this is another instance of Firaxis doing a fine job representing this sieve in not only an interesting way to play them, but also one that is loyal to their impact on history. So, yeah. Nice job, everybody. You made another good sieve. Yeah. All right. So that's Ambiorix. That's Gaul. They're a lot of fun. If you haven't played them, you should play them. And let me know how you enjoyed it or not. Or just tell me that I'm totally wrong about everything. I'm fine with that too. It's all good. Okay. Yeah. So that's that. Before I close, just want to remind everybody that the Discord group is uh, rocking and a rolling. 
getting new members every week. It's a lot of fun. I encourage you to come join us if you haven't yet. Stay tuned for later episodes of Leader of the Week. Also, stay tuned for some game recap episodes coming out. Also, stay tuned for a couple more interviews that I'm working on getting scheduled soon. So, you know, just keep track of your podcatcher feed. Might be some exciting, interesting stuff coming on down the pipe. What else is going on? There's a lot of news these days. Oh, Van Bradley and I, uh, you may know uh, Bradley from his, uh, from his feed, Van Bradley Games. Bradley has started uh, a Hamilton podcast similar to his Bridgerton podcast, and I'm on it with him. So I'm going to drop a link to that uh, in the show notes. If you're a fan of the musical Hamilton, give us a listen. Let us know what you think. It's called Let's Dive Deep Hamilton, and it is a very, very good time. Lastly, and most gratefully, I want to let you know that uh, we've recently added listener support to this podcast. So if you are enjoying this and you are looking forward to what's coming down the pipe, uh, maybe throw a little contribution our way. It would be very much appreciated. Helps us keep rolling. Helps us continue upgrading equipment uh, here at VectorCat Incorporated. Um, and it would be, like I said, very much appreciated. So you can find the link to the listener support option in the show notes. And I'm never going to ask for much. I'm just saying, if you want to help out, it's appreciated. In closing, be on the lookout for next week's episode covering Batru of Vietnam, another exciting leader, another dynamic Civ with a unique play style. They are so much fun my goodness if you have not played vietnam you okay just all right i'll tell you what i'll tell you all about them next week i'm gonna shut up now i'm gonna go taking enough of your time that's it anyway next week vietnam ba true all right i'm vector cat you can find me on the internet bye bye <laughs>